As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello there, I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. I'm so, so glad you're here and really excited about today's episode. Before we jump into it, I do want to take a quick minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Michael, who says, Crucial Concepts Bootcamp helped me get off to a great start, and that alone was priceless for the final success. So, Michael, thank you so much for giving us your feedback about Bootcamp. I'm so, so proud of you for taking that extra step to prepare for nursing school. So many students show up on their first day thinking, thinking that there's nothing they can do to prepare or that nursing school is going to be just a continuation of what they did in their prereqs and they quickly discover that that is not the case. So doing some prep work ahead of time is absolutely crucial and you did it and you're doing well. I'm so proud of you. If you want to learn more about Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, you can head to the episode notes or go to my website, straightanursingstudent.com and click on courses in the menu bar. So let's jump into our topic, which this week is multiple sclerosis, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, my BFF very best friend in the whole wide world, has multiple sclerosis. I learned a ton about the condition from talking with her and just seeing what she does to manage her condition. And it's also something obviously that you as a nurse are going to encounter either with your patients or even if you're in nursing school, you're definitely going to be tested on this topic. So let's start off with three stat facts about multiple sclerosis. So stat fact number one, a 2010 study showed that more than 99% of individuals with MS had been infected with the Epstein-Barr virus at some point in their lives. In fact, recent studies show that when an individual is infected with Epstein-Barr virus, the risk for developing MS increases more than 30-fold, making Epstein-Barr virus a leading cause of MS. Stat fact number two, cases of MS are more commonly seen in areas of the world that are further from the equator. Studies show that for every 10 degrees away from the equator, the symptoms of MS appear on average 10 months earlier. A leading theory is that sun exposure and vitamin D are protective against multiple sclerosis. Some areas with high prevalence are Canada the United States, Germany, and Norway. And then stat fact number three, because heat can exacerbate the symptoms of multiple sclerosis, a hot bath test used to be conducted as a way to diagnose the condition. So if an individual was suspected of having MS, they were immersed in a tub of hot water. And if their symptoms got worse, that was the diagnostic criteria for multiple sclerosis. 
All righty. So you got some stat facts about MS. You're probably primed to learn more, right? So let's dive in. So multiple sclerosis, or as we just say, MS, is an immune-mediated, complex, and chronic condition of the central nervous system. It is characterized by the destruction of myelin, which is that protective sheath that covers nerve axons in the brain and the spinal cord. Made up of fats and proteins, the myelin sheath allows for rapid transmission of nerve impulses. So when this protective layer is damaged, lesions or plaques, as they're called, develop throughout the nervous system and nerve impulses slow down, causing the symptoms of multiple sclerosis. So the condition usually develops between the ages of 20 and 40. And one resource I found said that the age 32 is the average age for diagnosis. Now, one thing to know about MS is that the disease course is variable. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And in general, though, the studies and what we know about MS is that permanent disability tends to set in within 10 to 15 years. So complications are really numerous with this condition. They include things like decreased mobility, that's a big one, cognitive dysfunction, chronic vertigo, visual impairments, dysphagia, recurrent UTIs, constipation, fatigue, pain, and depression. We'll talk more about what the individual with MS goes through and their signs and symptoms in just a moment. But first, let's talk about some risk factors. So there are quite a few risk factors for MS, and these include genetic, environmental, and lifestyle, as well as immune-related factors. So let's go through each of these. So looking first at genetic risk factors. So it's important to understand that MS is not an inherited condition, but having a first-degree relative with MS is a known risk factor. Studies also show that when that first-degree relative is on the maternal side, so on the mother's side, this poses a greater risk for developing the condition. Additionally, women are three to four times as likely to develop MS as men. And one of the strongest genetic determinants is the presence of a particular variant of a gene that's involved in the immune response and the body's ability to distinguish between pathogens and the body's own tissues. And again, in MS, the tissue that's being attacked by the body's own immune system is that myelin sheath. Now let's talk a bit about environmental risk factors. So MS is more common in areas of the world that are further from the equator. Temperature is thought to play a role in the development of multiple sclerosis due to the fact that it influences the spread of viruses when people spend a lot of time together indoors. And remember that Epstein-Barr virus is closely related to the development of MS. And then another factor related to environment is vitamin D exposure. Inadequate vitamin D exposure is associated with the development of MS, though researchers don't fully understand that whole pathophysiological connection, but they do understand that there is a connection there. Individuals living in areas further from the equator simply have less exposure to sunlight and lower levels of naturally occurring vitamin D. 
And then another environmental factor is diet. Now, diet can be a modifiable risk factor, yes, but it can be heavily influenced by geography. Individuals living in areas of the world that get less sunlight tend to eat diets higher in saturated fats, which increases inflammation and the risk for developing multiple sclerosis. Now, let's talk about some modifiable risk factors. MS is increased in individuals with obesity and in those who smoke. Individuals with that low vitamin D are also at risk, and yes, that can be related to environment, but we could also supplement vitamin D. So supplementation with vitamin D has been shown to be protective, and the research indicates that taking daily vitamin D can lower the risk of MS in women. I don't know about studies for MS in men. This study talked about MS in women and their risk. Additionally, a diet high in fish oils and getting outside, getting as much sunlight as you can have been shown to decrease the risk for developing the condition. And then lastly, we have immune-related risk factors. Individuals with other autoimmune diseases, and MS is an autoimmune disease, are at higher risk for developing the condition. Those with type 1 diabetes, for example, are three times more likely to develop MS, while those with inflammatory bowel disease are 1.5 times more likely. Other autoimmune disorders that are linked to higher risk of MS include pernicious anemia, psoriasis, and thyroid disorders. Additionally, exposure to that Epstein-Barr virus is showing it to be a leading cause of multiple sclerosis. I mentioned this in the stat facts, but let's talk about it again. A 2010 study showed that more than 99% of individuals with MS had been infected with the Epstein-Barr virus at some point in their lives. And then recent studies show that when an individual is infected with Epstein-Barr virus, the risk for developing multiple sclerosis increases more than 30-fold, making that Epstein-Barr virus infection a leading cause of multiple sclerosis. Now, it's thought to be due to structural similarities between the Epstein-Barr virus and brain proteins, so the immune system is more easily confused as to which is pathogenic and which is self. Varicella zoster has also been shown to increase the risk of MS as well. So those are some of the risk factors for MS. Again, they were genetic, environmental, modifiable, and immune-related. Now, earlier I mentioned that MS has a varied disease course. So let's talk about that, looking at the four types of multiple sclerosis. So how MS progresses in an individual is really unpredictable and can vary widely from person to person. And that's one of the reasons why it makes it such a complex condition. The four progression types are relapsing, remitting, primary progressive, secondary progressive, and clinically isolated syndrome. So let's talk a bit about each of these. So first we have relapsing remitting MS or RRMS, relapsing remitting MS. This is the most common progression type of multiple sclerosis with about 85% of individuals initially diagnosed with this subtype. RRMS is characterized by relapses of new or worsening symptoms 
followed by periods of complete or partial remission. And then during that remission, the patient may experience a complete resolution of their symptoms with no increase in disability. And then in other cases, even with partial remission, the persisting symptoms can cause lasting disability. During remissions, the disease does not progress or worsen. So let me explain that again so that you understand it. So when we have a relapse or a flare, symptoms worsen. Some patients go back to their baseline and have no increase in disability, while others will have an improvement of their symptoms when that flare is over, but their baseline has now changed. They now have increased disability as their baseline. So I hope that helps you understand what happens in relapsing remitting MS. Next, we have primary progressive MS or PPMS. And in this subtype, the individual experiences worsening neurological function and disability without any relapses or periods of remission. Approximately 15% of individuals with MS have this subtype. And then there's secondary progressive MS or SPMS. So in secondary progressive MS, the individual's disease course initially starts out as relapsing remitting, but then changes to a progressive course where the condition worsens over time. So that would be a secondary progressive. And then there's something called clinically isolated syndrome. So clinically isolated syndrome is an initial episode of inflammation and demyelination that causes neurological symptoms and persists for at least 24 hours. Though individuals with MS can have clinically isolated syndrome, not everyone with clinically isolated syndrome develops multiple sclerosis. However, they do have a higher risk for future occurrences and development of RRMS if their MRI shows the presence of those lesions or plaques. So now that you have a basic understanding of multiple sclerosis, let's take a look at caring for these patients using the straight A nursing latte method. And if you've never heard me talk about the LATTE method before, it's a quick acronym to help you focus in on the things a nurse needs to know. It is a total game changer when you are especially in nursing school and having to learn so very much. It's hard to sometimes know what to focus in on. The LATTE method takes care of that. So L is for look, A is for assess, T is for tests, the second T is for treatments, and the last letter E is for education. So let's go through it and you can see it in action. If this framework appeals to you, I'll put a link in the episode notes so that you can get a free template and use it on your own. So the first letter in the LATTE method is the letter L. How does the patient look? Basically, what are their signs and symptoms? So symptoms of multiple sclerosis will vary from person to person and are related to lesion locations and how severe the damage is. Some common signs and symptoms, and there are quite a few that I'm going to go through, include, first of all, numbness and tingling. So this is often the first symptom experienced by those with multiple sclerosis and can occur anywhere in the body. When numbness or tingling become painful, this is considered neuropathic pain, and that can also be very, very difficult to treat. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about that, I did an episode on peripheral neuropathy just a few episodes back. That is episode 316. 
Another common manifestation of MS is difficulty with walking. Walking and gait difficulties are a consequence of muscle weakness, loss of balance, muscle spasticity, fatigue, and sensory deficits. There's also fatigue. Fatigue occurs in up to 80% of patients with MS and can have a serious impact on quality of life. Then there's weakness. Weakness can be a result of damaged nerves that stimulate muscles or underuse of muscles because over time their muscles are more difficult to use so the individual may not be using them as much and this can lead to deconditioning. Muscle spasticity can also occur, so these muscle spasms can be significantly painful for individuals with MS and drastically affect mobility. Another really common manifestation of MS is heat intolerance. Many, many people with MS will have a temporary worsening of symptoms when exposed to heat or even when they just have a fever. Even an increase of just one quarter to one half of a degree Fahrenheit can further impair electrical conduction in demyelinated nerves. When symptoms worsen with increased temperature, this is called UTOF phenomenon. And I really hope I said that right. If I said it wrong, I'm sure I'll hear from someone. There's also cognitive impairment. Cognitive changes in multiple sclerosis are varied and can include difficulty with memory, problem solving, focus, word finding, and information processing. However, for most people, the changes are mild and in most cases, intellect, reading comprehension, and long-term memory are not affected. Next is bladder dysfunction. Bladder dysfunction can include urinary frequency or urgency, urinary incontinence, and urinary retention. And that last one can definitely set your patient up for a UTI, and so can urinary incontinence. And then there's bowel dysfunction. Patients with MS can experience both constipation and fecal incontinence. Vertigo is another really problematic symptom. Chronic vertigo will exacerbate difficulties with balance and gait and just really magnify your patient's risk for falling. And then there are ophthalmologic problems. So vision problems can be varied in individuals with MS and can include blurred vision, pain with eye movement, poor color vision, and optic neuritis. There's something called dysesthesia, which is also known as the MS hug, which is a sensation of squeezing or tightening around the torso and is often a first sign of a relapse. And it doesn't last for very long, but it's just this quick squeezing hug feeling. And again, that's often the first sign of a relapse or a flare. Another is Lermitz phenomenon. This is a sudden and brief electrical shock sensation that spreads throughout the body when the neck is flexed. And this occurs in about 25 to 33% of individuals with MS. And then there's pain and depression. So looking at pain, studies show that more than half of all patients with multiple sclerosis experience significant pain at some point with almost 50% suffering from chronic pain, and you can imagine the huge impact that has on quality of life. So with that, we also have depression. Understandably, depression is a common symptom experienced by those with multiple 
sclerosis. And then a few less common symptoms include dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing, dysarthria, which is difficulty speaking, maybe having slurred words, slurred speech, dysphonia, which is going to be a very soft voice. You have difficulty making a loud vocalization. Also hearing loss, seizures, tremor, loss of taste, and even respiratory difficulties if the muscles of respiration are affected. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Next is the letter A, which stands for assess. How do we assess our patient with multiple sclerosis? So assessments for a patient with MS are going to vary depending on that individual's specific manifestations, complications, and level of disability. Some common assessments are, first off, looking at their mobility. You want to assess the patient's gait and walking ability, keeping in mind that these individuals are very, very high risk for falls. You're also looking at their level of disability, and you can use a validated tool such as the Expanded Disability Status Scale, though that may be more something that the neurologist uses, but you definitely want to be looking at their level of disability. I'll put a link in the episode notes to some information about that scale so that you can get a feel for what it covers. Basically, it's going to help the healthcare team quantify the level of disability and track progression or remission over time. The scale looks at things like muscle weakness, coordination, sensation, speech, swallowing, bowel and bladder function, vision, and cognitive function. Another key assessment is looking at fatigue. Many individuals with MS suffer from fatigue, which can greatly diminish their quality of life and their ability to perform their ADLs. Fatigue may be directly related to MS or associated with a medication. Some medications can cause fatigue as a side effect. It can be associated with poor sleep. It can be associated with pain or depression. We also want to assess our patient's pain, and I always advise utilizing a systematic approach to pain assessment, such as the old CARTS acronym, which looks at onset, location, duration, characteristics, associated symptoms, relieving symptoms, timing or triggers, and severity. Another important assessment is to look at bladder function. Incontinence and urinary retention both put your patient at higher risk for a urinary tract infection. In addition, incontinence can lead to skin breakdown and loss of independence. We also want to look to see if the patient has any difficulty swallowing, which is dysphagia. So an individual with MS could have difficulties in this area, which places them at high risk for aspiration, 
airway obstruction and the development of pneumonia. So we definitely want to assess our patient's ability to swallow. If you're noticing coughing when they're drinking water, for example, that would be a great time to advocate for a speech language pathology consult so that they can get a thorough swallow evaluation and further studies. We also want to weigh our patients. Things like dysphagia, pain, fatigue, and depression can all lead to reduced nutritional intake and unintentional weight loss. So let's keep an eye on their weight. And we're also going to assess our patients for signs of depression. And we can use a depression screening tool such as the patient health questionnaire. I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. Next is the letter T, which stands for tests. What tests are utilized for a patient with multiple sclerosis? So the diagnosis of MS can be a pretty prolonged process for some individuals and involves ruling out other potential causes. Multiple sclerosis may be suspected when an individual seeks medical care for neurological symptoms that have no other obvious cause. Specific tests utilized in the diagnosis and ongoing evaluation of a patient with MS include brain and spinal cord MRI. This is that key test utilized to confirm a diagnosis of MS. So magnetic resonance imaging or MRI shows the demyelinating plaques, also referred to as lesions. So the lesions and MS are typically located in white matter areas of the brain and in the spinal cord. Following diagnosis, patients with MS receive routine MRIs to monitor the course of the disease. Another diagnostic test would be a lumbar puncture. CSF analysis may be utilized if the MRI results aren't quite enough to get to a diagnosis. Patients with MS generally have consistently elevated IgG levels and other CSF abnormalities. Another test is the evoked potential test. This test records electrical signals in the central nervous system when peripheral sensory organs are stimulated. And then blood tests may be conducted to rule out other conditions and to also test for specific antibodies associated with the disease. The next letter in the latte method is another T, and this one stands for treatment. So what treatments are provided for a patient with multiple sclerosis? So it's important to understand there's no cure for MS, but there are a wide range of treatments available to help manage symptoms and slow the progression of the disease, improve functional mobility, and increase recovery during those relapses or those flares. So A common drug you'll see utilized are corticosteroids, so prednisone, which is a PO medication, and methylprednisolone, which is an IV medication, are utilized in acute exacerbations to reduce that nervous system inflammation and reduce symptoms. Note that corticosteroids are not typically used long-term. They're more used during those flares and relapses. And then we have medications that are used long-term, which are considered disease-modifying therapies, or DMTs. And it is recommended that individuals with RRMS, and because that's the most common type of MS, that's where a lot of the information that is 
out there, a lot of the studies that are looking at MS are referring to. So it is recommended that individuals with RRMS or relapsing remitting MS start disease-modifying therapy as soon as possible. And studies show that their use is associated with lower risk of long-term disease progression. So that's a great thing to know. So DMTs include several different types. First, we have monoclonal antibodies. And I will butcher these drug names. One is ocrelizumab and another is rituximab. Hey, maybe I, maybe I didn't do too bad on those. But anyway, monoclonal antibodies ending in MAB. So these medications are administered IV and though really, really effective, come with some serious life-threatening adverse effects. So that needs to be taken into consideration, right? So these effects include infection, talking serious infection, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML, and immune-mediated colitis. So monoclonal antibodies, super effective, but higher side effect profile. Now, the first DMTs or disease-modifying therapies used in MS were the beta interferons and glatiramer acetate. And these medications may be beneficial for patients who don't maybe require the most effective medications and are seeking less significant side effects. These medications are injected daily, every other day, weekly, depending on which is utilized. Some examples of the beta interferons are Avonex and Betaseron. Another group of drugs in that disease-modifying therapy category are the sphingosine-1 phosphate receptor modulators. So an example of a drug in this category is fingolimod, and these are PO medications that work by decreasing the migration of lymphocytes into the central nervous system. Though these medications are easy to administer because they're PO medications, so they don't require an injection or an infusion, serious adverse effects can still occur. Some examples include asystole, heart block, hepatotoxicity, PML, skin cancer, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or PRESS, and there are others. Another DMT group are the fumarates. Example would be dimethylfumarate, and these are also PO medications, and they modify the cellular response to oxidative stress. Adverse reactions include hepatotoxicity, PML, and life-threatening infections. Another DMT is teraflunamide, which is a pyrimidine synthesis inhibitor used in relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. It is also a PO medication taken daily, and it has anti-inflammatory effects. Adverse effects include bone marrow suppression and hepatotoxicity. Cladribine is an anti-neoplastic agent that can reduce disability progression and rate of relapse. It is taken PO or IV and comes with a significant side effect profile that includes heart failure, hepatotoxicity, neutropenia, PML, there that is again, and malignancy. And then we have Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors or BTKIs, and these are a new type of DMT, and these are in the later phases of clinical trials showing a lot of promise in reducing inflammation and neurological deterioration in patients with MS. So keep an eye out 
for those medications. So those were the disease-modifying therapies. There were a lot there. If you want to review those in written format, I will put a link to this episode transcript or the episode full notes in the show notes so that you can take a look at those. Okay, moving on to some other medications. Another one you may see utilized is vitamin D. Because MS has been associated with low levels of vitamin D, supplementation may be utilized. And then simvastatin. Typically, this medication is utilized to treat hyperlipidemia. It is actually also currently being studied as a possible treatment to slow the progression of secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. And then another treatment is hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Evidence is supporting the use of autologous stem cell transplant to basically reset the immune system and halt the inflammation that contributes to multiple sclerosis. It may be utilized in some individuals. They have to meet very specific criteria. They would have relapsing MS who are under 50 years of age and have had MS for less than 10 years, among other, of course, very strict criteria. Okay, let's talk now about symptom management and treatments utilized for that. So symptoms are managed with a wide range of medications and treatments, which are going to vary depending on each individual's specific symptoms or complications. So looking at cognitive impairment, which I mentioned earlier being common in MS, this may be addressed through cognitive rehabilitation, which some studies show can improve problems associated with information processing, memory, attention, and learning. And then muscle spasms. I mentioned earlier, these can be very painful and affect walking and gait. So these are treated through physiotherapy and pharmacology. Medications include antispasmodics, such as baclofen, muscle relaxants, such as diazepam, and medications affecting the central nervous system, such as gabapentin or dantrolene sodium. And then neuropathic pain is generally treated with gabapentin or pregabalin. Other possible treatments include the anticonvulsants lamotrigine or oxcarbazepine. Antidepressants may also be used, including TCAs, SSRIs, or SNRIs. Another symptom that needs to be managed is bowel dysfunction, and this can be related to incontinence or constipation or both. Treatments for constipation involve increased fluids, additional fiber, and the use of laxatives or enemas as needed. Now, incontinence may be treated by avoiding triggering foods or activities, adding bulking agents to improve stool consistency, and taking loperamide, which is an anti-diarrheal agent. Bladder dysfunction may be treated with medications that allow for full bladder emptying, such as tamsulosin, or medications that suppress urgency, such as oxybutynin. Gait impairment is due to many, many factors, including weakness, sensory loss, fatigue, spasticity, and vestibular dysfunction. Treatments include mobility aids physical therapy, and the medication dalfampridine, which is a potassium channel blocker shown to improve walking in some patients. Muscle weakness and spasticity are addressed through various therapies, which can include strength training, physical therapy, stretching, foam rolling, and massage. 
Occupational therapy is utilized to improve functional mobility, so individuals with MS can participate in all aspects of life. Heat intolerance may be addressed by avoiding external heats like saunas or hot tubs and taking hot showers or baths or going outside in really hot weather. And cooling strategies can be utilized to decrease internal temperature. Examples include the use of ice packs, wearing a a cold vest, taking cool or cold showers, and drinking cold beverages. Fatigue is typically first treated by addressing underlying factors such as disrupted sleep, medication side effects, or heat intolerance, or even depression. When non-pharmacologic therapies are insufficient, pharmacologic therapies may be utilized. Examples include stimulants and medications that promote wakefulness, such as modanophil and methylphenidate. The patient could also be prescribed SSRIs, such as fluoxetine, and also the medication amantadine could be utilized. General non-pharmacological treatments for a patient with MS include getting enough sleep, exercising regularly, eating a healthy diet, and avoiding or mitigating stress. So that brings us to the final letter in the latte method, which is an E for education. What are the key education things you're going to share with your patient? So in addition to, of course, ensuring your patient understands how to take their medications and key adverse effects to watch out for, patient education for MS focuses on decreasing risk for relapses, enhancing mobility, and managing symptoms. So there's a ton of possible patient education. I could not possibly share all of that with you on this episode. I've picked out some of the key things. So one is you want to teach your patient to minimize heat exposure, and they can do that by avoiding saunas, avoiding hot tubs, avoid taking hot showers or baths, and avoid being outdoors on hot or humid days. They should be advised to stay indoors in an air-conditioned environment. It's also important to teach some cooling strategies, such as drinking ice-cold beverages, taking that cool or cold shower, and using ice packs or cooling vests to decrease core body temperature. So heat intolerance can also occur with exercise. Of course, when you exercise, you get your metabolism up and your body temperature goes up. So teach your patient strategies to cool their body temperature both before and after exercise, such as taking a cool bath or shower before they go work out and then after they do their exercise. Diet is another area that is ripe for teaching, and it can have a positive impact on MS and disease progression. For starters, a healthy diet is strongly correlated with a healthy weight, which is associated with decreased risk for relapses, lesions, and disability. A healthy diet also reduces cardiovascular risk factors such as hypertension and hyperlipidemia, which are both associated with higher risk for disease progression and disability. And we also know that diet has a direct effect on the gut microbiome, which is connected with immunity and may have an impact on those with multiple sclerosis. So while there's no specific MS diet, the general recommendations are to eat fresh vegetables and fruits on a daily basis 
to avoid processed foods and added sugars, and with that to probably avoid eating out at restaurants and fast food places, which typically add excess salt, fat, and sugar to foods. That's probably why they taste so good. Instead, Patients with MS are advised to prepare their meals at home whenever possible. And if they're eating grains, they should choose whole grains over refined grains. So, for example, having brown rice instead of white rice. And a fabulous resource recommended by the MS Society is the ChooseMyPlate.gov website to get started with healthy eating. Again, that website is ChooseMyPlate.gov. Another important teaching component is about exercise. So making sure you teach your patient how important that is to their plan of care and that it can help manage many of the symptoms of MS, such as fatigue, um, decreased strength, bone density issues, bowel and bladder function, cognition, and mood. You also want to teach your patient that smoking and alcohol are Definitely modify over risk factors for disease progression and provide resources for them should they decide they want to stop using those substances. And since disease-modifying therapies can cause harm to a developing fetus, teach your female patients about the importance of planning their future pregnancies in consultation with their neurologist since these medications are generally stopped during pregnancy. And this can have an effect on their disease progression. So this is definitely a multifaceted and complex discussion they should be having with their neurologist. It's also important your patient understand that managing MS is a complex process that involves lifelong dedication, a multidisciplinary care team, and routine follow-up. There are many, many resources available that provide extensive education and guidance, as well as support. One especially helpful organization is the National MS Society, and I'll put a link to that in the episode notes. This website provides a wealth of information and patients can even get access to MS navigators, which are professionals who connect patients with support and resources applicable to their own unique situation. So again, that's the National MS Society website. It's at nationalmssociety.org. You also want to teach your patient that their care team can include a wide range of practitioners and what each of these people's roles are. So this can include a neurologist, a physical therapist, occupational therapist, urologist, gastroenterologist, speech language pathologist, ophthalmologist, massage therapist, and others, of course, depending on the patient's specific symptoms. Teach your patient strategies to mitigate cognitive impairment, including using alarms for medications and other important reminders. They should also develop a system for remembering events, tasks, to-dos, appointments, such as using a calendar or writing out lists. And lastly, it's also really important to encourage patients to develop healthy coping mechanisms and a support system. Ideas include joining a support group, connecting with loved ones, talking with a counselor, and continuing to participate in activities that inspire joy. So we just covered a lot of information about multiple sclerosis. So here is my super fast summary. Ready? Multiple sclerosis is a condition in which the body's own immune system attacks the myelin sheath, 
This disrupts nerve impulse conduction and leads to a wide range of possible symptoms and disabilities. The most common type is relapsing remitting MS, in which the individual experiences intermittent flares where symptoms worsen for a period of time. It is mainly diagnosed through MRI, which shows plaques or lesions on the brain and or spinal cord. Common signs and symptoms include muscle weakness and spasticity, difficulty walking, numbness and tingling, vision impairments, and fatigue. Heat exacerbates the condition, so individuals with MS are advised to avoid things like hot baths or showers, saunas, and being outside on hot or humid days. Common medications include DMTs for long-term management and corticosteroids when relapses occur. I hope this overview of multiple sclerosis helps you understand this complex condition, and I hope to see you back here next week. I've got a fabulous episode for you. I don't want to give away too much, but if you've ever had trouble inserting a Foley catheter, you want to come back and listen to next week's episode. So make sure you're following or subscribe to this podcast so that you never miss an episode. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.